everyone. Welcome to Ruth is Stranger Than Fiction. some people with me yeah <laughs> here we are here we are here we are it's joe hello and katie yeah hello we're all a bit overexcited to be back recording also it's katie's birthday so yeah. it's a happy celebratory day for us now we're back and today we're looking at the case of the Pizen hall murder Ooh, murder and peas yeah <laughs> Well, peas and hall. Murder with peas? Peas are not involved. Up the nose? Did you once put a pea up your nose? A baked bean, actually. A baked bean. Yeah, classic. Classic someone, child. Someone we went to school with put a mushroom up their nose. A mushroom? She, she wanted to know what a snail or a slug felt like, so she put a mushroom up her nose <laughs> and it got stuck and she had to go to the doctor's. But, um, does a slug have a nose to put a mushroom up there? No, she wasn't trying to be the <laughs> slug. She wanted to touch a slug and she thought a mushroom looks like the colour of a slug. I'll put that up my nose, then it'll be slimy. She <laughs> wanted to see what it felt like to have a slug up her nose for some reason. No, she wanted to feel like what it would be like to touch a slug, but she didn't want to touch a slug. So she was making a replica slug by making a mushroom slimy. Oh. And then she was so going to extract it and touch it. it. What a strange operation. <laughs> Okay. I thought that having a bean up my nose was weird, but that was someone in your year it. at school who did that. I'll tell you later. Oh, okay. How intriguing. All right, though. Let's get back to the points. <laughs> the earliest tangent yet. Today we're going to be talking about the Peasen Hall murder. This took place in Suffolk, 1902. And in a moment, I'm going to tell us a bit more about the where and the when. Then we'll look a bit at the who and the how and maybe even the why. But there's a lot of mystery that still shrouds this murder case. So what I thought would be fun is if you all the way through listen for the clues and the information. And then we and then solve it. You Maybe you'll be able to solve it at the end like Poirot it's, like one, of those, Poirot. it's one of those true crime podcasts suddenly we're going to fix everything oh I know we're going to get right someone... some wrongs yes 122 years later 120 <laughs> we, years later shall we do a re- big reveal Katie see if you yes. can we'll gather everyone into the room and <laughs> we're all <laughs> their corpses <laughs> come on corpses we're already gathered but before we do that shall we shall we have the first drink because I can see a jug of green liquid in front of me yes. and a cocktail shaker. And Joe's made the first drink. Do you want to tell us about it? The first drink is called Peas and All. <laughs> Very clever. See yeah. what you did there? Yeah. It is a pea-based cocktail. Okay. I'm uh, scared. It's one of our five a day. Oh, I love to get my five a day. Actually, it's got fennel in too, so it might be two of her. Does fennel count? Is fennel like yeah. a potato? No, fennel no, counts. fennel counts. Okay. It's part of the onion family, isn't it? If I made that up. What I can see so far is some empty wine glasses and they've got in them cocktail sticks in them and the cocktail sticks appear to each have some peas stabbed yes. onto them. Yes. <laughs> so you tell us about peas and all. I'm going to have to construct it in a minute, but it is basically a pea and fennel juice christ i've juiced some peas and fennel (laughs) and then it is mixed with some rum and lime and sugar syrup okay and i haven't tried it no that's the thing okay well let's you you pee us 
I yes, think sir. if you sold pea and fennel juice on Borough Market, you'd be a millionaire. It looks like the most healthy thing ever. How did okay. you juice a fennel? Uh, blitzed it and then I squished it. Oh, my God. Okay, so, pee us, pee us. But first, I've got a shake. Good ASM. R-A-S-R. <laughs> I can never remember what it is. Okay. Now Jo is shaken and now she's going to pour out... A mixture, which is, I guess this is the rum and sugar syrup. And lime. And lime, yes. Murky. But many of our classics are. And now on top of this is going to go the green juice, which I believe to be the fennel and pea emulsion, shall we call it? It's not emulsion. Well, if you're being fancy, pants. I am fancy. Okay. Now we'll go green. A bit of the old green. Okay, the old green's going in. People can't smell this, but it's a very peeish aroma. Is it a, pee- a peeish aroma? For people drinking. Quite I unexpected. Think it's what was the... Why did you put fennel in as well as pea? That was the recipe. Oh, I, am, I see. I'm this is from a recipe. recipe. Oh. But it wasn't called peas and all. Okay, I assume this was something your mad brain had devised, because it sounds quite bad. I mean, it looks insane, actually. Now I've made it. It looks like pea soup. Yeah. Are we to eat the peas off the sticks? I don't know. I just thought they'd look fun. Okay, this looks awesome. I think let's give it a little twizzle. Twizzle it with our pea stick. Ooh, it smells pea-ish. It's very (laughs) pea-ish. It smells fresh. I've never had a pea cocktail before. I think it smells brilliant. When looking for pea cocktails, it turns out there's a lot of them out there. Did you get to some rather unsavoury sites when you Googled (laughs) pea cocktail? (laughs) I think it's brilliant. Have you tried it? I just had a sip. Okay. I mean... It's fresh. It's really limey and fresh. It's like Ooh, salad. Like it. It's like salad in a glass. <laughs> That's why one of of my drinks, salad in a glass. I'm eating my peas on a stick. Okay, thanks, Joe. Peas and all. I quite like it. I think I that's do. a good introduction for us. Just quickly, my main source today is the book The Peas and Hall Mystery by John Rowland, published in 1962. Here it is. I'm holding mm, it up. Nice cover. I found this book in a secondhand shop in Wells Next to the Sea. And it was very fortuitous because I'd been planning an episode about the Pease and Hall murder for quite some time. So it seemed perfect to find the book there. He's best known for his crime fiction with works such as Murder in the Museum and Calamity in Kent. <laughs> but he also um, writes some two crime books. That's some nice alliteration. Good yeah. Work, John. And he put in a lot of footwork and he went to Pease and Hall and spoke to a lot of people who wouldn't, you know, this was 60 years after the crime. So they weren't necessarily around, but they, their, you know, family might have been. So. But did he drink a pea based cocktail? No, although the book starts with a visit to the Swan Inn. So ah. he does start the book by drinking a pint. So <laughs> quite if, in keeping. If you're from Pease and Hall, what is your. Are you a peas person? A peas person? Um, pea? Are you just a pea? And then they're all like, oh, like we're all peas in the peas and hall pod. <laughs> There's also an episode of the series Julian Fellows Investigates. You know Julian Fellows who wrote Gosford Park and stuff? I do, but who knew that he had that series? Well, what I'm going to say about it, having read John Rowland's excellent book, which contains a lot of references back to primary source materials, is that Julian Fellows' show was a pile of trash. <laughs> An absolute pile of trash. I'll, I'll tell you why a bit more later, but anyway. Had he not We're, read John Rowland's book? I feel like he hadn't read any book. <laughs> Ever. <laughs> was it TV? Yeah, it was on TV. I think it's the BBC. But it was so... It's mainly really bad reconstructions. So they've kind of... <laughs> most of the thing is characters playing the people of the story and Julian Fellows, like, pops up 
up and makes a hammy comments about something or other about it. And then at the end says what he thinks, which is total trash. Anyway, you can watch it on YouTube. But I don't I might not based it. on what you've just said. <laughs> so anyway, where? Shall we start with the where? We know it's Peasen Hall. Peasen Hall. Suffolk. A very beautiful part of East Anglia in the countryside near places like Saxmundham, where I've been to a wedding, and Sibton and those kind of Suffolk, beautiful Suffolk villages. When? May 1902. It was the night of May the 31st when it happened. It On was indeed a dark and stormy night. It's very Christy-ish That's because Christy. it has... Oh, Christy. Christy-ish. It has some of the classic ingredients of crime fiction. A violent death in the middle of a fierce thunderstorm mm. in a country house, although not a kind of grand house, more of a, you know, a comfortable, large sort of village house. Red herrings, local gossip... All those kind of things. And a cast of characters. A cast of characters. But of course it's a real case, we must remember. The case of the death of Rose Harsant. Roland paints a vivid picture of life in Peasen Hall at the turn of the century. It was very rural, a little world of its own. Most people worked on the farms or at the seed drill works of Messrs Smythes. I do not like them. Why? Well, Smythes not a very friendly name. Would you like it? them more if they were Smiths? Yes. <laughs> I what see. is seed drilling? I don't really know. You surely can't drill seeds. They're very small. Are you <laughs> drilling the seeds down into the earth for planting? Oh. Chris is nodding. But then that will be all over the fields, not in a factory. But factory. the thing is that I think that, for example, the main suspect in the case, William Gardner, was a foreman at the seed drill and he worked with a team of carpenters. So I assume they were making things that would Oh, they're making plant the devices the seeds, that other basically. people plant the seeds yeah. with. I feel like we've just all demonstrated our urban ignorance. It's true. It's true. So a lot of people went there, other people were farmers. It was quite isolated in the sense that people just didn't really travel around very much. Maybe they would go to nearby Saxmundham. A few fancy folk might travel to Ipswich. Wow. As it was, few people left the village and not really very many people came to the village. There wasn't really a reason for outsiders to come to the village. So it was quite in a little world of its own. The lives of the people were very small and quiet. Quaint. So you can imagine. Or what? Quaint or bleak. You know, because quiet could be a lovely thing or it could be... I think probably, I mean, hard work if you're working at the farm or the seed drill, I imagine. And I think also, which we'll see in this story, a close community. So people... Gossipy. gossipy people knowing each other's business. Yeah. A lot of small-minded people, that kind of thing. Which you get in a lot of villages, I think. But it meant that the death of Rose Harsant in 1902 caused quite an astonishing scandal and the small village became the focus of the national news for a time. I bet they were so excited for a bit. Everyone likes a bit of something to happen. A bit of scandal. Yeah. Like when Bob lost his arm at the seed drill, but now it's, it's, it's bigger. <laughs> Bob. Poor Bob. Shall we hear about the victim? Yes, please. Mm. Rose Harsant was in her early 20s. She worked as a servant girl for Mr and Mrs Crisp. Housekeeping, cleaning, you know, doing their laundry, that kind of thing. Within the community, the Crisps were regarded as upper class, meaning that they made the odd trip to Ipswich. Uh, Their house was a kind of... I don't want to give the impression it was like a grand country house because it wasn't at all. It's in the village, in the middle of the village. But it's, you know, a comfortable sort of Maybe double-fronted. 
two stories mm. with then an additional like a eaves roofs under the eaves type thing I've seen pictures of it recently and it's painted that Suffolk pink classic yeah so so like a comfortable nice house for them and the fact that they had a servant girl to do a lot of their chores is, you know, an indication that they had a lot more money than some people in the village. Rose lived actually inside the house. She had um, what Roland calls a flatlet, a little flatlet. Oh, I thought you were going to say she lived like in the eaves. And, well, like, she did live in the bed. eaves. Oh, okay. <laughs> the kitchen was at the back of the house and she had a the door that led into the kitchen where she would go that way, not the front door. And then there was a um, staircase directly from the kitchen which led up to her rooms. So she could kind of come and go without the crisps really knowing what she was up to. And that may be significant in our story. Or it was significant. It could have been a nice bit of independence. Of course. I mean, I think the thing is she had quite, she had a good setup, really. Mm. She had this nice, kind of a nice job. You know, it was probably hard work, but not super difficult. She had somewhere to live. It all sounds quite nice for her. Take note of the clue, Katie. Yeah. Take note of the clues. Should we be writing things down? Clue. We'll use our brains. Oh, my brain's full of PGs. <laughs> <laughs> she was also known around the village as a keen churchgoer. She would go up, as with many of the Peas and Hall uh, folk, the Peas, she would go uh, up to the chapel at Sibton. The Julian Fellows thing, investigation thing, makes a lot about the fact that it was a Methodist chapel and that the fact that they were Methodists is a big thing, but it doesn't feature as a, in anything else I've read, really, so I'm not, you know, Methodists, not Methodists. I don't feel it was... It was a chapel. But no booze. Is that the main difference? They don't they... drink. They don't drink. It just seems possibly notable maybe not. maybe you um, think it's a clue well i don't know i'm thinking you're quite i'm thinking that means you might be quite puritanical and if you're known as be. a church mm. in the village but i don't know was True. she like known particularly for her well there were there were um, churchgoingness. there know. were several church a lot of churchgoers mm. but she was keen and she also near the main chapel in sibton where they used to go there was a small additional chapel called the doctor's chapel i'm not sure why no one seems to know i find um, that sinister yeah and she was sometimes as a to earn a little bit of extra money she would like sweep out and clean the doctor's chapel and be paid a few extra shillings for that and the doctor's chapel will come to be a key location in our story because you've told us it's like christie agatha christie i'm imagining cluedo in my mind mm-hmm. oh so and we're I'm... like one two three now we're in the doctor's chapel one yeah. professor p professor <laughs> <laughs> Or Parson um, P, perhaps. And yeah, we're in the Doctor's Chapel. Think of the board, mm. Katie. That's what we're Okay, we think imagine. of the board. Now, let's return to May 1902. May had been unusually hot and dry, and all could feel that a storm was building as Saturday, the 31st of May, progressed. The thunderclouds began to build as the evening came. Around the village of Peasenhall, people were opening up their cottage doors and coming out to look at the skies and they could see distant lightning over villages around the region this and the thunderclouds. Really yeah. ominous. And many were pleased that a fierce storm was coming to clear the heat wave that had been running throughout the month. The streets were so dusty and dry and the fields were dry and dusty as well. So it was seen as a welcome hope for rain. And they're also mm. dusty out in the fields all day long in the farms. Similar to our dry summer that we had. I was we just thinking, mm. we, know, we know about that. So the storm clouds were beginning to gather and that feeling in the air, the pressure was growing in the air and the sort of strange pre-storm 
weirdness. Roland says that it got dark much earlier than it should have done for the time of year because the sky became so overcast. He tells us, here is a quote, When the storm did finally break, it was one of the worst thunderstorms in a generation. The lightning flashed almost without intermission. The crashes of thunder were continuous. Nervous people in bed hid their heads beneath the bedclothes. Others called in neighbours, thinking that somehow this terror from the skies could be the better endured in company. Ah, oh, that's a nice thing. He's a good writer. In. Yeah, so some people did kind of gather together. Yeah, sorry, it was very dramatic. I was just pressing <laughs> the last little bit. I like that though. Everyone's getting like you know, because it felt like a big event, I guess, for them. Come round and have a brandy. Not much goes on yeah. in Peasen Hall, exactly. Let's Storms all. Storms uh... are really fun and exciting as well. Mm. And Rose apparently was nervous of the storm. She was known to be a bit scared of of the storm coming in, so she she was nervous that night anyway. Eventually, the storm moved away and the village was left in peace. That is, at least, until a terrible discovery at Providence House, the home of Mr and Mrs Crisp, on the morning of Sunday, the 1st of June. I'm afraid to say that it was Rose's father, Mr William Harsant, who first found the body. He was in the habit of visiting his daughter each Sunday morning to take clean laundry that Mrs Harsant had prepared for Rose. And this meant she could go to, to chapel each week in nice, clean clothes. Oh, no. Did the Harsons live nearby? Are they All, local? Yeah, they lived nearby. Everyone was quite local to the area. Mr Harsant went through the side gate that led round the back to the kitchen door. This was his normal thing. But soon he noticed something quite unusual. The door itself was already open. Mm. He ventured inside... His worst suspicions were confirmed as he saw poor Rose lying on the kitchen floor near the bottom of the stairs. She was dressed in a nightdress and stockings, but her nightdress was badly burned on each side. And worse yet, blood was everywhere on the floor and Mr Harson saw that there were deep slashes across his daughter's throat. Oh, no. A horrible scene to come across. The burns are interesting. Yeah. Interesting. Interesting. A terrible I event. Have made notes, Joe. This is going to be difficult. <laughs> Do you want some paper? I don't, I don't. <laughs> you can make some scribbles. We've got to use note down the clues. Brains. Okay, sorry, we're using our brains. Okay, but how strong are they? Do you need paper? <laughs> <laughs> so far, we've got stairs. Which now she's said at the bottom of the stairs. stairs. But I think there's something Doctor's special chapel. about them. Doctor's chapel. Burnt nightdress. Burnt. Slashes across the throat. Heck. We're collecting them. We yeah. collect those cool. up. We're good, we're good. The next we can learn about the scene is the testimony of Constable Eli Nunn, the local policeman. Eli Nunn? Eli Nunn. What a name. It's he was called eels. in. Now, Roland describes him as, he, he says something like, I find it harsh, because it seems he observed a lot at the scene, but Roland says... That he doesn't suppose he was particularly brilliant, but then there was no need for a local policeman somewhere like Peasen Hall to be particularly brilliant. <laughs> Damning. Aww. Is that because Roland is an urbanite? And Maybe. he's like, oh, yeah. these country bumpkins, Maybe. they don't even have brains. So Eli began to I observe... I don't think that, just to be clear. I was just no. being Of Roland. course not. And like I say, I feel like Eli's done quite a lot. He, he's observed some good stuff, as we'll see. So he observed all he could. He took in the scene. Apart from the part around the throat and the chest, Rose's nightdress was badly burned on both sides and it would transpire that she had burns on the right and left side of her body as well. 
Oh, grim. Part of the hanging tablecloth was burned too that was nearby, as were the charred remains of a local paper that lay underneath Rose's head. The throat was cut nearly from ear to ear. Right. And he couldn't necessarily tell at the time, but it turned out it wasn't one, it was at least two slashes. I'm a passion. Interesting. Although much blood was on the floor, Eli Nunn could see no footprints in the blood itself. Near the body was a broken oil lamp, because of course, if it was a dark night, that's how people would be seeing. They would carry an oil lamp around the house. And the smell of paraffin was strong on the air. Is that what the burns was, or her, was it her fabric soaked in paraffin? Oh. So he but did why think... on both sides? Yeah, that's weird, isn't it? Because why would you... You wouldn't spit on both sides. Yeah. Well, I do sometimes spit on both sides, but that's... <laughs> purely clumsiness. He did think, could this have been a terrible accident? Had she slipped coming down the stairs, dropped the lamp onto the floor, cut herself on the shards and got on fire? It seemed unlikely. <laughs> I mean, like... <laughs> Maybe one of the above, but not both. <laughs> you might them. cut yourselves on the shard or set on fire, but it's got to be quite special to do both. Yeah. Or some sort of terrible suicide attempt. And weirdly mm. enough, some papers did report it as a suicide. Who slit their throats twice and set themselves on fire? <laughs> well, quite. But most likely, Eli Nunn thought, this is a murder scene. Foul play. This is foul play. He noticed some other clues. A broken bracket on the wall, which he thought had perhaps been damaged by the door being pushed forcefully back against the bracket, breaking it. He's not a country bumpkin. I like him. He's observing so much. No eels is awesome. Which door? Just the the door from the outside that led into the kitchen. Uh, Okay. So someone's knocked. She's forced entry. She opened the door a little bit and went, "Hello, what's this?" At this time, and then they went, "Boom." Sorry, I'm getting carried away. That's what Eli Nam wonders. He looked around for a weapon that could have caused the wounds, but he couldn't see anything. Also found were the remains of a small glass bottle with a cork still jammed into the top of the bottle and the the bottom half of the bottle was smashed and a label visible on the side beneath some bloody marks. Although somewhat obscured by bloodstains, none could still make out the words on the label. Two or three tablespoonfuls, a sixth part to be taken every four hours. Mrs. Gardner's children. What's that? What? A vital clue or a red herring. Oh, <laughs> Is that really telling us it is a red herring or is that... Oh, oh my gosh. it's tricky, isn't it? <laughs> well, what, what is it? Is it a medicine? Do we know? Is it a... Who's Mrs. We'll Gardner? More. We'll hear more about the bottle. Who are her children? None went up next to examine Rose's bedroom. Mm. A this clever is, move. Mm, yeah. The bed hadn't been slept in, oh. indicating that Rose must have died sometime during the night before, probably in the middle of the thunderstorm. Ah, oh, she makes her bed like a good 1902 person. None did question Mr and Mrs Crisp, and Mrs Crisp said she did think she'd heard a thud and a scream during the night. <laughs> oh, Mrs Crisp, that's awful. But then because of the storm, she thought, well, she couldn't be sure and maybe it was just a, you know, a stormy nonsense noise or... So she, she, didn't, she didn't pay it much mind at the time. She didn't want to check. And actually she couldn't really be specific about the timing because she'd kind of woken up and later at trial that became vital that she couldn't pinpoint when she'd heard that scream and that thud isn't it crisp is a funny name mr and mrs i thought it earlier but i didn't i mean i don't i don't like the sound of them either but i've already said it about the smides and i didn't think i could like anyone (laughs) with a stupid name otherwise i sound a bit prejudiced i wouldn't mind being called ruth crisp it's really abrupt (laughs) i'd like it it is abrupt I'd i'd need a middle name a soft one ruth penelope crisp 
Nunn also found in the room some pieces of correspondence which were to prove vital in the investigations that followed. Now, it seems Rose kept quite a lot of correspondence in her room. I do really enjoy it when you say correspondence rather than a letter. (laughs) I like it too. (laughs) I like it too, Jane. It's extra special. Yeah, it seems more 1902. Yeah, for sure. (laughs) Now it would all be emails. Ugh. And you'd have to search the I'd computer. It'd be worse, it'd be WhatsApps. Ugh. You'd have to get on the phone. Yeah. None could just find these papers lying about. But now it's, can you get her phone? What, read the messages? Get into the phone somehow. Crack mm. it. You can't use her fingerprint. I suppose you could. You could, but there's not Do you think well. they do that? Use the corpse's print? Mm, they don't in Vera. They I have suppose to the it's frowned on. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think it's frowned on to use Vera the corpse's knows. thumbprint. <laughs> Immediately, one note was of great interest to none. I'm going to read this in the way that it's written, i.e. no punctuation. Oh, so gosh. apologies Are if it sounds weird. Are you going to do an accent? No, can't do it. I'm sorry. I don't even know where to start. <laughs> I will try to see you tonight at 12 o'clock at your place. If you put a light in your window at 10 o'clock for about 10 minutes, then you can take it out again. Don't have a light in your room at 12 as I will come round to the back. That's it? What do you think about that letter? Well, someone's come round at 12 and she's let them in and it's all gone horribly wrong. But what would you extrapolate if you were none? What would you think from this letter? A lover. Yeah. A lover. One with no punctuation. You would, wouldn't you? You'd think it was a lover. Also, one who is very commanding. Mm. (laughs) That's quite bossy, isn't it? Put the light at 10. Don't put the light at 12. Don't do that at 12. (laughs) But put the light at 10 and then stay up two more hours, even though you have to be up at five to do the beds for the poshies. Yeah. And then still... Yeah, that's a good point. It's a lot of waiting, isn't it? Because I'm about 10, I'm going to go for a pint. On the way to the pub, I'll see that you've got a light. It's that. It's that. And then I'd like you to wait up for me. I don't think much of this this pee. Would you think that this was a good suspect for the crime, whoever wrote this letter? This P is the best suspect. That's what none thinks too. Yes, none knows. Yeah. Also found were a number of other letters from someone else, different hand. I don't know exactly what they said because Roland has the prudery of a early 1960s man. Um, he describes them as indecent, containing oh. verses of a shocking kind. And she kept them. She but kept she likes them. church and no booze. Yeah. But a different... A different hand. Someone who could punctuate. And he tells us the rest of the letters, but he doesn't tell us these obscene letters. So who knows what they said. But I wonder if what's considered obscene in 1902 and 1962 ankles. might not be the same as what's considered obscene in Shocking 2022. Ankles. But anyway. And you're right. Mind so she... 60s, I don't know what I'm talking about. I've seen the 1902 ankles. And Katie, as you said, she kept the letters and that was seen as being a kind of indication of her character. Um, the oh, fact that someone yeah. sent these letters to her and she hadn't got rid of them, she'd kept the letters. Even, but she works hard, she goes to church, well, she doesn't have booze. She's got the letters. She just has pea juice on its own. <laughs> <laughs> Plain old pea juice. <laughs> also found, there's a lot of letters in this bedroom, were a couple of letters from William Gardner. Gardner's children, Katie. Mm. A nearby neighbour. Good work. Presumably the husband of the Mrs Gardner, who's referred to on the label of the bottle. We'll come back to these letters. Oh, what would you think if you were none at this stage? Well, you'd want to find out who had written the letter. If, I mean, presumably the two it's signed. letters. The, yes, but also the one that says that they're coming round. Because someone who comes round at night is probably... Nefarious. Yeah, exactly. We can't trust that one. Do you think from that letter it implies they'd been round before? It seemed a strange system to write in a letter for the very first time. Put a light at this time, do this. Yeah. I will come round to the back, he says. He letter. knows where the back is. Exactly. So I think this implies it was a long-standing or at least a previous arrangement. And bear in mind, of course, she had her own secret stairs. Mm. 
Shall we hear next about William Gardner? Yes, please. Okay. He's going to be crucial in the story. Okay, then. A handsome, bearded man in his 40s. He worked in the carpentry department of Smythe's Drill Works. Ugh, Smythe. Mm. <laughs> Rotters. You're taking against them. Rotters. He was too a dedicated churchgoer, attending the same chapel in Sibton as many of the other Peasenhall folk. And Rose. And Rose. He took a very active role in the life of the church, fulfilling the roles of choir master, assistant steward... Sunday school superintendent and treasurer. Okay, that's a bit much. He's a bit too keen. He likes the titles. I think you're right. And the beard, I think, and he's all like, oh. <laughs> I think he's a bit too keen, and I think that that seems to be the opinion of a lot of the other villagers, is that he was a bit, you know, a bit pious. A bit much. A bit, oh, I'm so good at church. Look at me with all my badges and exactly. my beard. Oh, that beard. Yeah. I bet they hated that beard. Roland suggests he was they the kind of man... They all in the kitchen holding broccoli against their faces. <laughs> <laughs> Look at my broccoli beard. <laughs> Look at who I am now, treasurer and choir master. So full and green. <laughs> <laughs> Roland suggests he was the kind of man who was respected but perhaps not liked. His ardent church-going manner and intolerance of less godly folk were a bit off-putting for other people. I think it sounds like no one liked him. So Mrs Gardner's hiding her sherry in a medicine bottle (laughs) to get a little bit of something because she's like, oh God, he's so boring. She's made a bad choice. She's living with it. Georgiana Gardner, that's his wife. Georgiana Gardner. Well, that's what fellows calls her. Roland calls her Georgina. (laughs) 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 I don't trust fellows. I'm going to just read you an excerpt from one of the letters from William Gardner to Rose Harsant that were found in um, Rose's bedroom. Oh, God, is it seedy? Dear Rose, I was very much surprised this morning to hear that there's some scandal going the round about you and me going into the doctor's chapel for immoral purposes. (gasps) Oh, seedy. Bill Wright and Skinner say that they saw us there, but I shall summons them for defamation of character unless they withdraw what they have said and give me a written apology. The next letter. That's just an excerpt. Dear Rose, I have broken the news to Mrs Gardner this morning. She is awfully upset, but she says she know it is wrong, for I was at home from half past nine o'clock, so I couldn't possibly be with you at that hour. I have asked Mr Burgess to stand these two chaps to come to the chapel tonight and have it out there. However, they stand by such a tale, I don't know, but I don't think God will forsake me now, and if we put our trust in him, it will end right. This refers to a scandal from the previous year, May 1901, almost a full year before the murder. A rumour went around the village that Rose Harsant and William Gardner were having an affair. And this is to what he refers in these letters that Rose has kept. What would she see in him? Yeah. That broccoli beard. (laughs) Rose and Gardner attended the same chapel on Sundays and had been sighted on a number of occasions walking back to Peasen Hall together. Maybe on its own this was enough to set tongues wagging, but soon the gossip of some other fellows spurred the rumours to new heights. Now it was the doctor's chapel. Mm. We knew that was going to be troublesome. A pair of young men started spreading a scandalous story. Their names were Alfonso Skinner and George Wright. (laughs) Where did Alfonso appear from? I know. They claimed to have seen Rose and William together inside the chapel and to have heard them whispering and laughing. Ugh. God. (laughs) Whispering and laughing. Wright claimed that he heard Rose saying, I was reading about what we were doing tonight. I'll tell you where it is. 38th chapter of Genesis. What's the 38th? Well, they ran home to find out. And apparently... (laughs) 
The chapter in question tells of a love affair and seed being spilt on the floor. Oh, cripes. I know. So they they started to spread this rumour around Peason Hall. Epitome of seediness. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Gardner and Rose strenuously denied the account. And Gardner, as he suggested in his letters, sought to get this out into the open and force these men to recant their accusations. It's quite a lot of big, complicated sentences to have overheard from a chapel, isn't yeah. it? Yeah. Well, this this is a good point, Joe. And this specific. <laughs> and this came up that it was actually, you know, if you were outside, how much could you really hear could of you what hear was the genesis, the specific uh, yeah. verses of yeah, the Bible? I'm not sure it's 38 or 28 at this point, and then you're like, "Well, yeah, I, then I haven't run home to get a Bible." And if people are whispering, <laughs> can you really? Are you going to hear that from the outside? Anyway, Wright and Skinner refused to take back their testimony. The church master looked into it because he was thought, "Well, I can't have William Gardner doing these multiple mm. roles in All church. All of the jobs. All of the jobs in church. <laughs> if he's a seedy fellow, yeah." And Rose and Gardner both denied it. In the end, it came down to one person against the other person because there was no proof either way. And Gardner's good standing in the community and his position in the church basically went out. So the church master said, "Well, there's no evidence that this has happened." So you know, did he say, "Get out, Alfonso"? Get out. But the whispering continued around the village. While the whispering's continuing... Do you want another drink? Well, I was wondering... We we're, could in, have the... we're in a church sort of well, area. Well, my drink's called the church cocktail that I got from the oh, internet. Oh, So okay. I'm wondering, but only if this is a good time. If this is not a good... It's a good time. Let's do it. Okay, we're back. Katie's brought up her drink. I will say it looks like three drinks. It is three drinks. Well, so you didn't tell us much about what this was. I never do, just a few hints. Yeah, but one of the hints we got was that Rose, now we didn't know she was going to be dead at this point, but we got that Rose (laughs) went to church. Yes, yes. Now, I had thought you'd said that we'd named Charlie, and so I... Had what? found Charlie. We've got, uh, I, I don't know. I've made that up. Okay, fine. Um, so <laughs> I swapped William in my head for Charlie. Okay. So I found that on the internet a cocktail called the Church, which is a proper cocktail made of proper ingredients. Great. And then I thought, oh, that doesn't seem as exciting as you know. I didn't know Joe was juicing peas, but I thought <laughs> it was just a cocktail with like fairly regular ingredients. Sure. And I was like, okay, well, that's not that exciting. Okay, I need to make it better. But I only thought this in the week when I'd already got the ingredients for the church cocktail. At which point, I have bought a can of rose gin and tonic from Sainsbury's. Nice, and found a cocktail that I had some of the ingredients called a Charlie Boy on the internet. <laughs> Which I have then made into a shot. Which I so I thought it's a little Charlie drink, a little rose drink, and they are going to the church, which is the big ah, drink. Okay, I don't think there's. I'm trying to think. Is anyone in the story called no. Charlie? But well, I don't think they are. Let's just rename it William. Little William. Little drink. little so Willie. Little William shot. <laughs> And a rose drink. Should we have the little shot first? What the, do, what order did you think? Well, the shot, I think, will be sweeter and... I don't know. But in terms of the story, William and Rose are going to the church, so yeah. we've got to consume them before For they the church. get to the church. Okay, well, shall we consume Willie first? Yeah. On the other <laughs> hand, the church is the only proper drink. Well, well, that's good, because then okay. if we, we'll end up with that one. We can sit cool. that while we hear the right. next stage. Best to end on a high. So Ooh, this it smells... Is a, um, what does it smell of? Oh, Whiskey. A cocktail made into a shot. Yeah, well, I didn't have everything, so I just put some of the things <laughs> in a glass. 
We just won't pass. I did the there is a real cocktail coming. No, I feel like I feel like Jake and Ed like just mixing things that have funny names. That's true. That's true. All right. Must I do it as a shot? I'm not going to. No. Okay. I'm gonna sip. Oh. Oh. Oh, it's strong. <laughs> I told you it's a shot. It's mostly gone, to be honest. One mouthful is mm, almost a nice. whole shot. Well, you're, you've got the smaller glass. Ooh. Some of the glasses went over the 25 line. Some of them didn't quite. Whiskey and... Caramel. Caramel? Oh. Creme caramel liqueur that we had left over from the, uh, <laughs> the fortune cookie drink. Oh my God, it's episode. quite nice. Okay. Yeah. I think this is making William a little smoother. Than he than actually is. He actually is. Well, that's because it's called a Charlie boy, like a bit of a, a bit of a Jack the yeah. Lad, a bit of a geezer. Ooh, it's yeah. not called a um, church treasurer, Willie. <laughs> <laughs> church warden. But maybe it is because maybe it's like, oh, the caramel's his gloss on the outside, but underneath mm. he's whiskey. Maybe. Ooh. He's got all the ladies and he's just like using his, maybe that's why he does all the pious stuff because he wants everyone to think he's that's better than he is. caramel glass. Yeah. Now on the subject of him being so pious... As you say, it seems a bit far-fetched that Alfonso Skinner and George Wright should have heard this whispering when they were outside and Rose and William were inside. What could be the motive for them to make this up? They don't like Willie. Yeah, and... um, They love Rose. One thing I don't like about... They love Rose is possibly believable. Not liking Willie is just... In the Julian Fellows Investigates... You don't know Willie. (laughs) No, I don't like him either, though. Come on, he's swarmy. He's... He's a caramel You've glass. You've tasted him. Look at his caramel glass. <laughs> in the um, Julian Fellows programme, they, which as far as I can tell is not true, they make the story that the two scandal spreaders work for William Gardner at the Seed Drill Works and that they don't like the fact that he's a bit of a harsh boss on them and he makes them do work. So they basically add, in this TV show, they've added in this completely untrue element of the story Was it because made- it makes it like a better narrative. But I don't know. I don't or think you can just be doing by his this. Ancestors who were like wanting to clear his name, <laughs> saying, "Oh, but it's because he was strict and like that wasn't a bad thing." And then now it's. I don't know. It just seems to me you can't just make things up for your TV show. Does he tell you? Does he well, say he this says is it's proper. a real case, and they present it as if that's what happened? But a lot of it is, as far as I can tell, just things that they have thought this makes a better story, so we'll add this in. I'm not on board of it with it. No, fabricating the history is not all right. Anyway, so that's not the motive. I don't think, but. Maybe the motive is that people just found him a bit smug and a bit religious and they were like, oh, wouldn't, you know, let's kind of give him a poke in the eye by making up this rumour about I mean, a hundred years later, we found him annoying. So (laughs) imagine him Like, you can picture him with his smug beard and his attractive face. That broccoli beard. His caramelly, sticky skin. He's like a horrible (laughs) caramel mirror cake just gleaming everywhere. Oh, he is. He's so shiny. I hate a mirror cake. But underneath... Nothing. Superficial. Maybe people of the village agreed because, as I say, the whispering continued, the rumours continued about Rose Harsent and William Gardner. And it's hard to shake that sort of thing off in a small community once the rumours have begun. And just to check, the handwriting of the William Gardner letter mm. is different to the other two. So oh, there you are, think he there might have been writing the smutty letters? Well, so there's so, three different... There's three different handwritings. This is a very interesting point and it comes up at trial. Everyone basically agrees the smutty letters is a completely different handwriting. But there is disagreement over whether William Gardner's letters, which are written from him, signed by him, are in the same handwriting as the assignation letter about meeting on the night of May the 31st. And that is a key point at trial, whether or not people think that the handwriting is or isn't the same. 
So that's interesting. Now, what would you do? So let's go back to Nunn. He's found the body. He's got these initial clues. He knows the history about William and Rose. What would your next step be if you were Eli Nunn? Find out where everyone everyone was last night. I thought I might call him my superior. <laughs> Why? You don't think he's up to the job? I know. If I was him, I'd be like, oh, it's a murder. <laughs> I don't know. You wouldn't, Joe. You'd rally your 11 subordinates and get on <laughs> yeah. out there. Canvassing, door to door. I'm not sure there was a local superior, uh, okay. to be honest. It's just him. Right, okay. Refocus. Yeah. I don't do. Joe's immediately like, abdicate responsibility. <laughs> you go <laughs> to a pint to in deal the with swan it. and ask them. Yes, listen to the gossip. Yes. With well, a drink. No, what? I would really, I would find out about Gardner. That would be my yeah. first. So you'd start doing a bit of, you'd ask around a few things, wouldn't you? So, and remember, of course, the broken bottle that said about Mrs. Gardner's um, children also indicates Gardner. I had forgotten. Well, that's why I'm here to remind you. So Good. Nunn did ask around a bit. He spoke to Mrs. Gardner. He said, what's this bottle? Why is it here at a crime scene? Now, Mrs. Gardner said that the bottle had come to Rose's house quite innocently a little while before. She said that Rose had been visiting them and she'd complained of a chest cold and Mrs. Gardner had suggested camphorated oil to rub on the chest. I imagine it's similar to Vicks. Probably more poisonous, I don't know. (laughs) Tablespoons, because you wouldn't be... Well, no. So so what she said was, Rose had said she didn't have any camphorated oil and Mrs. Gardner said, oh, well, I've got some and she'd found an old bottle in the house that had come from the doctors previously, presumably, and she decanted a bit into Mm. that little bottle and corked it up and given it to Rose to take away. That does sound probable. Sounds feasible, doesn't it? If they were friends. Well, it was a small village. It was a small village. Yeah, but if you've heard rumours about your husband with a mm, young woman. True, true. Mrs Gardner also hoped to provide an alibi for William Gardner. because well, of, of course, course she did. <laughs> uh, she claimed that he'd been with her for the first part of the night they'd gone to their neighbour's house, Mrs Dickinson, because she was scared of the storm. So she said initially the three of them had been together at Mrs Dickinson's house and then they'd gone back to their own cottage. But she said, I only slept fitfully because of the thunder and the rain. And, and she said, I would have definitely known if he had gone out of the house overnight because I hardly slept. I was awake all night, tossing and turning. So, did they sleep in the same bedroom? Yes, they did. Okay. So um, she probably would have had. That. Unfortunately for William, because of Mrs. Crisp's inability to say when the thud and the scream had happened, the neighbour couldn't also be used as an alibi. Whereas, because the alibi of a neighbour and a yeah, wife better is, than... is better than just the alibi of a wife. So that's what she said. But none asked around, and some other incriminating things came up. He's good, none. He's good. I think he's doing all right. A good job. I'm a good job. Nothing. Now. A local man called James Morris, who was a gameskeeper, said he had been up at 5am after the night of the storm. He'd seen footprints in the mud leading between Providence House, where Rose was killed, and the gardener's cottage. Okay, that is pretty good observing. He is a gameskeeper. Okay, do you know what? Fair enough. Okay, He's um, used to tracking hares and foxes. I hadn't thought about his job, I'm convinced. In and out of bushes. (laughs) Up and down trees. (laughs) Between cottages and posh houses. <laughs> he was later asked at trial by one of the barristers. He was asked, do you think it likely that these muddy footprints would have lasted when the rain was so very, oh, very rain, fierce? Yeah. I would thought it... you meant like prints in the rain. that the They mud were in the, the mud. Yeah, the mud that the rain had caused. But he was asked, wouldn't the rain, if the rain was as fierce as it was, wouldn't that have obliterated any footprints? And Morris said, no. 
And the lawyer said, what makes you say that? And he said, because I saw them. (laughs) (laughs) So it's hard to take that line of investigation much further. Um, (laughs) Another local claimed to have seen William Gardner at about 7.30 on Sunday morning, burning a fire in his yard. Oh, Bloody clothes. I feel bad that we drank his drink. You, you well, turned we, against him. We, we did know that it was a smooth, false caramel. Yeah, that's true. So this was exactly as you say, Joe. The the thought was then he was burning because if there was so much blood on the floor, we all know what a, a slashed neck will do. That's going to spray blood everywhere. We don't know from first-hand experience. Well, no. <laughs> <laughs> no, I must add, not from first-hand experience. So this was seen to be quite damning. So what happened next? Just three days after the murder, June the 3rd, William Gardner was arrested. Oh, fair play. I think that is fair. Yeah. I think there's evidence there. There seems to be a lot of circumstantial evidence, doesn't there? None has gathered the pieces. Yeah. Witnesses have said things that seem to turn against Gardner. The whole village knows of the previous year's rumours. The whole village hates him anyway. Mm. Shall we have our little rose drink? Yeah. yeah. It seems a bit sad. Tiny rose. Tiny poor rose Harson. Cheers to rose. Maybe that's what cheers we to rose. Yeah, yeah, cheers to rose. Cheers to poor rose. So Gardner's been arrested. He's in custody very soon after the murder. What are you thinking about this drink? Sweet. Thingy. Gosh, it's sweet. Really sweet. Luckily, it's only small. I don't think I could drink a whole can of this. It's like pure sherbet. It's really unpleasant. (laughs) Sorry, Rose. I'm really sorry. I'm sorry, everyone. I'm so Rose. I'm so everyone. So disrespectful. I don't think it's the worst we've ever tried. No, it's not. It's it's not like when Ruth made that boozy milk. (laughs) The boozy, can I just, the boozy milk was the first episode we ever did. I hadn't got into the swing of things. I didn't really appreciate what was required to craft a delicious drink. It's never boozy milk. Two years ago that boozy milk was. More than two years. But what else do we need to establish someone as having done a murder? Evidence. All we've got is hearsay. But do we need some other thing? Means motive evidence. What have we got? Isn't it means, it's motive means and isn't there another M? Yes, there is. Anyway, what we don't have is motive. We can imagine one, but we don't have a fixed one. We can all imagine one. (laughs) Well. What's the other M? I'm very Maybe it's not an M. Motive means and. He's got motive, has he? Well, I mean, the fact that they are linked means that there's probably going to be something we could Mm. use as a motive. We don't know what the tangled... We shouldn't use it as a motive, Katie. No. We should... That implies we're going to fix the motive on him. Well, I think he's that kind of slippery character that we need to. We need to fix him. We need to be more sly than him. Okay. Otherwise, we're never going to... He's a slippery devil. The post-mortem was carried out by the local Dr. Lay... In collaboration with Dr Richardson of Saxmundham. I can only assume they thought this is quite an unusual case. We need to make sure we've got a couple of people to corroborate the email. And also if the local doctor might know them, they might need... That's true. Dr Lay gave evidence at the inquest on the 16th of June. He first described the nature of Rose's wounds. He testified that there were a number of slashes in her neck and throat and that both left and right jugulars were completely severed. Either one alone would have been enough to cause her death. He was asked if, in his opinion, this could have been a self-inflicted situation. That's nonsense. Dr Lay said no. In his opinion, they could not have been self-inflicted. It would not have been possible for somebody to inflict first one slash to one jugular 
and then the next slash to the other jugular because you would be already immediately so incapacitated that you couldn't do it. blood spurting and horrible things. So he said no. In his opinion, there was no way that this could have been a suicide or a self-inflicted wound. Then a gasp went around the room when Dr. Lay also revealed that Rose had been six months pregnant. (gasps) That's the motive! Yes. This was just what the prosecution needed. Just the motive they were looking for. Oh, Rose. Oh, poor Rose. She must have been all confused. Poor old Rose. A sad time. So William Gardner went to trial. But hang on, first, what news on the burns? Did the postmortem tell us anything interesting? Helpful? Just they were there. I suppose it fits with the idea it couldn't have been self-inflicted because yeah. you can't slash both your jugulars and then also set fire to yourself. Although, I suppose the thing is that there was the broken lamp. So mm. if you were trying to make the claim for suicide, you could say she slashed her throat, then she like dropped the lamp, fell over, went in the flames by mistake. I don't know. That's a lot, though. I mean, yeah, it's 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 unfeasible. But they they couldn't really add much more about the the burns, just to okay. say that there were burns on both sides of her body, and that the nightdress was was burned also. But obviously, the fire had not completely consumed everything mm. because she was, you know, her her face was in but was maybe was okay. Must hope it would. Maybe William was hoping it would. And that's exactly the case that the prosecution began to build. Here is the scenario the prosecution put forward. He had written the letter telling Rose to meet him, put the light in her window and he would come to meet her later that night. And as I say, implied that this wasn't the first time. And actually a, 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 local, a local boy... Um, who had been cycling through the village. I can't remember why. There's a very long story about him having to get some keys to some place. He said he saw a light in Rose's window around 10 o'clock. So she had been prepared for the assignation. They suggested that William Gardner had written this letter. He had gone to the house, perhaps with the intention of killing her. He'd taken the little bottle, which he had got from his own home, had put paraffin into the bottle with the intent of killing Rose and then burning the body to perhaps erase the evidence of his crime in some way. He had then fled into the night. Before the trial, I'm reaching for my real drink before it's ice is totally the gone. Church, the church, yeah, to the church! To the church! Before we get away from the church, because I think the ice is melting and then it might lose some impact. Oh, church, what is in you? Oh. Now, if it's called the church, I'm going to guess some things. So what is a churchy drink? Communion wine... That's not in here. Well, there is an holy water. There's an aromatic wine-based thing oh, that I got from the internet. Lil- Lilette. Lilette. Okay, so yes, I can smell some herbs. Orange? No, but I think that's coming through from. So the Lilette stuff is got some herby stuff, and Ooh, there yeah. is another liqueur thing in here. Okay, Lilette. Oh, it's it's an aromatic wine-based liqueur thing that you have like before dinner, and you can have it with tonic. A peritivo, and you can have it with tonic, or you can just drink it neat with ice. And there, in this, if you'd like to know, is lemon and sugar syrup. And the bitterness that Joe can taste is it's supposed to have aperol, but I have yeah. bought Aldi's own version. Nice bitterol. Um, bitterol. <laughs> <laughs> oh no, so no bitterol. Sorry, it's the little version. I've got the Aldi version. Anyway, what's the Aldi um, version? I don't know. It's called like. Aperino or something. Yeah, but there there was this big thing about Little and Aldi, which one made the best one. But they're half the price. And um, I love that they've just called it bitterol, though. That's hilarious. I mean, that is what it is. I feel like that would come in a tiny glass bottle that had a cork jammed hard into the end. 
I and there's like also it... gin in it. So what's the church thing? Don't know. <laughs> it feels quite... It was just called the church, but it was on more than one website, like it's a thing, and it was called the church. Sure. Feels quite cheeky for church. So anyway, that's the case that they're making. We've got this bottle that says it's from the gardener's house. We've got this pregnancy. We know the story of the scandal and we don't really believe Mrs Gardner's alibi, basically. So the next thing is for the trial to take place. The trial. Yes, the trial. But we won't hear about that today. If you want to hear about that, you'll have to come back and listen to our next episode when we will hear all about the trial of William Gardner for the murder of Rose Harsant. What will be the outcome? Can Joe and Katie solve the case? Thank you for listening. See you next time.